a Sunday school teacher was teaching her young class about sin. Not easy, right? And so she thought that she would begin by asking a series of questions. And so she asked sincerely in beginning, what must we do to be forgiven? What must we do before we can be forgiven? If I were to ask you as a bunch of adults, what might you say to that? So there was silence in the class. Not easy to answer that question. Finally, a shy, bespectacled girl raised her hand rather sheepishly and tentatively. What must we do before we can be forgiven? She said, we must sin. <laughs> it's not a bad answer. And in one sense, you ask a vague question, you get a vague answer. You ask a silly question, you get a silly answer. That wasn't silly. It was a genuine, genuine effort by the Sunday school teacher. And I want to say to us, we all walk around with questions, what we call soliloquy, questions you ask in your heart, in your head, with nobody to talk to but yourselves. Questions about life. Why am I alive? What's the purpose of life? Questions about purpose. Questions about disease. Questions about pandemic. Questions about war. Questions about death. And ultimately, you and me will do constant soliloquies about God. Is there a God? Who is this God? What questions, what questions do we have as we gather for this Holy Week convention? What questions do we have about Jesus when we come to Good Friday and Easter each year? If I were to ask you, we'd ask each other, who killed Jesus? The answers may be very obvious. Who killed Jesus? Beginning with the Jewish leaders, then the Governor Pilate, then the Roman soldiers, and finally, the Jewish crowd, together with the Roman soldiers. That's easy. If we were to ask, what killed Jesus? The answer may be slightly harder to discern. So Andrew Gosling, 49 years old, threw a wine bottle at a group of people from his seven-floor condominium. Right? It struck and killed a 73-year-old man who was barbecuing with his family and relatives on the fifth floor. And you ask yourself, what made Gosling do it? Gosling, an Australian national here, drank beer with acquaintances at lunch, then had two more beers at dinner, and then another can when he reached his Spottiswood 18 condo at Tanjong Paga. What really killed the innocent 73-year-old man was not Gosling's wine bottle. It was not Gosling's drunkenness or his mental state, which was proven to be okay, though he was intoxicated. It was Gosling's deep hatred towards Malay Muslims. Why? In the police investigations and the court case that unveiled, that unearthed this, the real reason was his heart. His heart was still burning with anger and he was upset with what? with the Bali bombings and the Melbourne bombings that killed Australians. And that's why he was sentenced to five years jail, five years and six months jail. Two-thirds of Ukrainian children have been displaced from their homes. Three million, three million children, that's about more than half the population of Singapore. Right? And so, you know what that looks like? Let's see what that looks like. The first light comes on. So what's killing Ukrainian children? What's killing Ukrainian women? 
What's killing Ukrainian civilians? It's not the tanks. It's not the missiles. It's not the bombs. It's not the bullets. It is, can you fill that in for me? It is Putin's ambition to make Russia great again. So Trump had a great ambition, make America great again. The acronym is MAGA, and this is make Russia great again. And his great insecurity about NATO, and his great insecurity about NATO using Ukraine as a front against Russia. It was, again, Putin's heart. So whether it was Gosling's bitterness or Putin's cold-blooded ambition, can we all agree as we start? Agree on what? That we are all fellow cardiac patients in need of a very good cardiac specialist. And Jesus diagnosed this in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, out of a man's heart comes all kinds of evil. Your heart, my heart, is the headquarters, the depository and the repository of all sins and evil against God and against one another. In Mark chapter 14 to 15, we get to the heart of what sins actually killed Jesus. We know our sin killed Jesus, singular. Our sin against us, our sin of rebellion. But particularly what sins did it manifest itself? The death of an innocent man or death of innocent children may invoke what? When you look at this, when you look at that photo, if I showed you a bit more and you just scroll your phone for all the suffering in Ukraine, all the children who are displaced from their parents, never knowing whether they'll see their parents again, right? it may invoke what I call a passing moral anger. But you know something about us? We are all very fickle moralists. Fickle moralists, for when you see something wrong, do something wrong, it invokes something, you want to do something, but then you're distracted. You're so easily distracted by the next sale that will give you a discount. You're so distracted, so easily distracted by the next profit you might make on your property or the share market or on Tesla. The next K-drama to unwind. You're so distracted by the next game to vegetate on. You're so distracted by the next pawn to indulge in. Then your compassion that was sparked in reading about Gosling or Putin fades and gets crowded up. You start off initially angered, then you do nothing. But the death of Jesus should not merely invoke in you and me a fleeting response because, because we have no right or liberty to treat Jesus' innocent life and cruel death with such fickleness and such forgetfulness. Revelation 5 puts it this way. Revelation 5 is, the, is a vision of the ending when God comes to wind up human history and we are gathered. And Revelation 5 verse 13 says this, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, saying what? Heaven and earth saying what? All the beings of heaven and earth saying what? 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. All nations will be gathered for, according to Revelation 5, for the forever worship of God and the Lamb of God. You know what that means? God has purpose that Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection must change you forever. Every other life and every other death may trigger something in you temporarily, but Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection is the thing that must change you forever. So let me just explore that. What do you think will change you forever? And some of you think, if I went to, if my children, if I, if I went to my first choice school, if I went to my first choice university, it will change me forever. If I, went, if I got my first choice job as a doctor or a banker, I'll, it will change me forever. If I got my first love, right, and not like the K-drama, second love, third love, uh, just goes on. If I get first love, that will change me forever. And some of us may be thinking, if I get my first choice of BTO, right, now at Greater Southern Waterfront, right, in three years' time, that will change me forever. No, friends. It will be the death of Jesus that will change you forever. What does that mean? That means you have no right, and I have no right, to be what? That you and I have no right to be a proud atheist who outrightly dismisses God at work in Jesus. That means you and I have no right to be an to be an indifferent bystander who remains permanently uncommittal and puts God on hold. Have you ever rung a place and it's an answering machine? They put you on a hold and it's going to take 10 minutes before you get any help? What does the death of Jesus mean? It means that you cannot choose to be a fickle moralist who is moved by compassion periodically, episodically, temporarily. It means that you cannot choose to be a forgetful worshipper who treats Jesus as a dispensable maid rather than your sovereign Lord. It means you cannot choose to be a utilitarian worshipper who needs Jesus to solve your problems but don't need Jesus to save you from your sin. All those things you have no liberty to, no allowance for, over the next three talks, by God's grace, we are going to enter into our Lord Jesus' world. We're going to do a reverse incarnation by entering into His final crushing and agonizing moments of His life. And that's why it's called, this first one, The Sin I Never Knew. But to really understand chapter 14, the context is, chapter 12 begins... Jesus heads from Galilee into Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem. He judges Jerusalem for his spiritual rot and his moral bankruptcy. There's a huge difference, friends. Jerusalem, the temple, and all the Israelite religious leaders and all the Israelite folk still looked the part. The temple was there. The sacrificial system was there. They still looked the part. 
but they had long stopped living out the part. You know the difference between living, looking the part and living the part? Here's the difference. Next slide. Yeah. And who is this? This is Father Peter Searson, a priest of the Catholic Church. And you look at him, the gentility on his face and in his, and in his, in his garments his, as a priest, right? He was actually accused of sexually abusing children from the 1970s to the 1990s, which turned out to be true. And in the investigations of him, he once held a young girl's, uh, he once held a knife to a young girl's chest and told her as he molested her, if you move, this dagger will go through you. Father Searson died in 2009 and the cardinal that gave evidence of his wrongdoing said that he, Father Peter Searson, was one of the most unpleasant priests he's ever met and had to watch over. As it was then in the first century, so it is now. Just because we look the part as God's church doesn't mean we are living the part. That is why Jesus walked in and judged this whole system of old worship centered around Jerusalem, centered around the temple, had to be renewed, sorry, had to be replaced. It's not a renewal of the Jewish temple. It's a replacement of the Jewish temple. How? By Jesus fulfilling all three roles that he was temple priest and sacrifice because he was rotten to the core. And so... That is the context of what's happening here. By chapter 14, it begins this way. We now zoom in to see how rotten to the core, how bankrupt it was under the holy eyes and watch of God. So remember we read earlier in chapter 14, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The Passover, the Passover, just in case you're new to Christian circles, the Passover was the most sacred and treasured festival among God's people, where they will remember God's undeserved love and God's miraculous power delivering them from sure death living under the inhumanity of a fellow man called Pharaoh. That's a good definition of sin, right? Your inhumanity against another person, another person's inhumanity against you. But God mercifully spared the Hebrews and lovingly offered them a new beginning. So from the miraculous deliverance, that brought them to Mount Sinai, to their final arrival at Mount Zion, where they built the temple, the very heart of the Passover was, God saved you to worship Him, the true and living God. And the truest expression of you loving this God, this loving God is you love Him with all your heart and mind and soul, and you love your neighbour as yourself. A summary of the Ten Commandments. Did you notice now it's two days before the Passover? Did you notice it's Jerusalem? Did you notice it's the chief priests and the religious leaders 
And the furthest thing from their mind is loving God by loving neighbour. They are plotting the intentional premeditated murder of Jesus. That's why, it's, that's why it is a microscope of a microscope of being rotten to the core. That's why this whole religion, looking the part but not living the part, had to be destroyed and replaced. And so, that's the view. This is the sin that killed Jesus. Then the camera zooms in. Let's go to chapter 14, verse 12. And it zooms in to Judas, one of Jesus' own chosen. And Judas Iscariot, who is now part of the new Israel, being constituted by Jesus to replace the old Israel. And Judas was one of the twelve who went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And then, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give Judas money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. What do you expect to read as I leave that there for you? You expected perhaps to read this. Judas, one of the twelve, came up to the religious leaders and decided to, and, and betrayed Jesus. And the chief priests and religious leaders were so angered, they were so insulted, and they were so livid, they arrested Judas and put him in jail. You notice the language there? They were glad and promised to give him money. The spiritual rot was so great that the premeditated murder of a fellow Jew would give them great delight. The biggest word in this entire section from this point onwards is the word betray, betray, betray. Right? The theme of betrayal began in chapter 3, verse 19, when the religious leaders upset by Jesus started to plot to betray him. Then it's picked up by Jesus himself where he predicts in the three predictions, in 9.31 and 10.33, they will betray me when I go to Jerusalem. And here in chapter 14, the Passover, betrayal jumps up from the small print and becomes the loud banner. It's no longer in small print. What is covert is now overt. What is hidden in people's hearts is now going to be manifested in their hands. So let me just walk you through the pathos, the piercing pain, the crushing weight, the sinking feeling of betrayal. In 1418, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. In 1420, it is one of the twelve. It's not one of the crowd. It's not one of the, it's not one of the religious teachers. One who is deeping bread into the dish with me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The crushing weight of betrayal. This is so totally... What is betrayal? If I ask you to define it, write two sentences of what betrayal is. This thing you just did to me, this thing that Judas is doing to Jesus, it is so undeserved. It is so inappropriate. It's so incommensurate to the depth of the relationship that he has with them. 
in a moment of self, in a moment of self-pleasure, in a moment of self-preservation, in a moment of self-pursuit and self-importance, we usually think this, in a moment of self, you know what you're actually doing? is to hell with others. So ask any wife, ask any husband who has been betrayed with adultery. And you will hear the anguish and you will see the tears, right? What on earth happened here, the wife may say. We had a history. We fell in love in JC. We went through uni together. What on earth happened? How could you do this to me? I bore you three children. It's totally incommensurate. It's totally disproportional. It's totally undeserved. We had a story here. We had a history of love, of fidelity. That is the agony of treachery. And you must walk through that. Do the reverse incarnation and walk. So, fellow pastor, been in ministry many years, served a long time, preached many hundreds of sermons, conducted many hundreds of communions, maybe the length of his ministry, as long as my ministry maybe, we could say we have preached thousands of sermons and conducted thousands of communions. But he was so so hurt by the response of one of his pastoral team and had given his best to him. And so there was a conference organized and he went to that conference. And the conference that talked for that night finished off with the communion. And the communion, you know how the communion begins? How do we celebrate it everywhere we are? On the night that Jesus was betrayed. I've spoken that hundreds of times. You have heard it hundreds of times. This pastoral friend has heard it hundreds, if not thousands of times. But when he heard it there at the conference, it was no longer arm's length. It was in the heart. Betrayal is not something you learn in Bible college. Betrayal and treachery is not something that is out there, that you hear. It's something you'll walk through in life and feel the dagger in your heart and the twist. It's not something that we ever want to read and gloss over. So what sin killed Jesus? Maybe here is a summary of it. It's what we call sophisticated sin, where we do wrong but look right. When we plot evil but look angelic. And Israel had perfected that in her walk with God. The religious leaders had done that. Where they learned to hide depravity under the veneer of respectability, if not morality. And so, notice the words there are stealth. The stealth and cowardice of the leaders. Leading to the betrayal of Judas, they both carry the same DNA. And what's the same DNA? They were dumping their envy and ambition onto Jesus to make Jesus look ambitious. They were dumping their hidden pride to make Jesus look like the obvious megalomaniac. They were dumping their self-interest
to make it look like it was Jesus' manic self-importance. They were dumping their deviousness to make Jesus devilish. How might sophisticated sin be experienced in your life and my life? I gave you a look at it just then. When a couple faces betrayal in adultery, treachery in adultery, you, you're sleeping with the enemy. He looks so faithful all these years. She looks so faithful all these years. Went to the office, nothing looked askew, nothing looked like it was derailed. And then you discover and you scream and you shout, we had a history here. We had a story of love. That's sophisticated sin. It's like a parent catching a child, lying, cheating, but covering it up with behavioural goodness, still going to Bible study, still going to service, still, still going to church. But then they discover on their phone, all of a sudden one day they are sexting away and exchanging photographs and exploring alternate sexualities. All those things, friends, are sophisticated sin at work. And in the workplace, the politics, the rivalry, right? everything you propose, this other fellow, this other lady, undercuts. Not because your proposal was defective, but because they just don't want you to get ahead. And it goes on, my friends. And then what other sins or manifestation of sin? Take a look at this. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And you know how this portion ends, right? This portion ends where he's confronted by the slave girl, Aren't you associated? Aren't you with Jesus? No, 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 until he finally swore. No, he swore. If sophisticated sin hides, then presumptuous sin denies. Peter and disciples presume on what? They presume on their sincerity of heart. They did hear the word of Jesus and dropped their nets to follow him. Not many people did that. We did that. They presume on their fidelity. Jesus spoke, but then he spoke to us and explained the parables. They had extra insights into the king and the kingdom. They, they had extra knowledge. They could outthink the rest. They presume on their tenacity. They were the chosen twelve. They will outlast the rest. But friends, the lesson of presumptuous sin is this. As experienced in Peter's life and the disciples' life. And what is that? If you choose to fall away from, if you choose to fall away from Jesus, you will stand for nothing. So they say, if you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. You don't believe in it, you don't, you don't stand for anything, you've got no moral compass, you'll fall for any worldview out there. There's, there's some truth there. But let's tweak it. For the gospel. If you don't stand and stand up for Jesus, you will fall for yourself. Or you may want to switch that around. If you stand for yourself, 
you will fall away from Jesus. It's as simple as that. And so either way we think of it, here is the danger of our vulnerabilities. That you and me are, no matter how sincere, you and me are not steady. We are not covenant keepers. We are not steady. We are fickle. And we camouflage it by our righteousness. We camouflage it by what we think our fidelity and our tenacity. And so we got mysteries. And for every mystery that's come and gone, I ask of them when they come back from their home assignment, before I say goodbye to them, the church says goodbye to them, now that you go back to the mission field, what things have changed? Uh, what are your vulnerabilities? What are your weaknesses? Ten years ago, when they went to the field, wherever it was, Taiwan, Philippines, Japan, their vulnerabilities were X, Y, Z. Five to ten years later, the vulnerabilities might change. So I want to ask of you, right? The picture now becomes clearer. Judas betrays. Peter denies. The disciples all run away. So we have sophisticated sin that hides our true motives. We've got presumptuous sins that deny that we are unreliable. And finally, we have what we call transverse sins, transverse sins that blames and kills Jesus. And you see it most clearly in Gethsemane. And what on earth is this? And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. At Gethsemane, you see a sight of Jesus that you've never seen before, and as Mark records for us, you see the soul, the depth of his sorrow unto death. He's basically saying this thing feels like death and will be death. And so he falls to the ground, he prays that the hour might pass and this cup might be removed from him. What on earth is the hour? The hour declares that Jesus will soon be facing the forsakenness by God. Father, Son have no quarrel all of eternity, but the Father will turn his face from the Son and forsake him on the cross. That's the hour. The cup tells us that Jesus will be punished by God for us. As one writer said, Jesus died because of our sins and Jesus died for our sins. And so on display here are what? Are the sophisticated sins, the presumptuous sins, all the way from the leaders to Judas to Peter, the disciples, and now it is the transfer sin that will lead Jesus to the cross. So as Jesus sinks to his knees at Gethsemane, he's not just facing the, the sin of the leaders, of Judas, of Peter and the disciples. 
He's facing the works of Satan and facing hell. Every disease, every demon possession recorded in Mark's Gospel, every false accusation against Jesus, every denial, every desertion, all bore the fingerprints of who? Every disease, every demon possession, every false accusation, every denial and desertion bore the fingerprints of Satan. Everything created by God is beautiful. Everything beautiful is eventually ruined by Satan and sin. The tentacles of Satan and sin entangles everything. Oh, how Satan wrecks everything beautiful. You believe that? Everything beautiful is wrecked by Satan and sin. And the Garden of Eden, the beautiful relationship between God and Adam and Eve, wrecked. From that point on, the beautiful relationship between Cain and Abel, wrecked. The beautiful relationship, and it goes on the whole Genesis, between Jacob and Esau, wrecked. The beautiful relationship between Joseph and his brothers, wrecked. The whole Bible is just full of broken relationships, broken people and broken relationships. I ask all of us gathered here and I ask all watching this, have you skated through life without broken relationships? You live on another planet. You may have taken SpaceX to Mars. Here on Earth, everything beautiful is eventually ruined by Satan and sin. And so my eldest brother died of a massive heart attack in Kuala Lumpur. I got the news from his son who came back after a long day of work and found my brother slumped there. I don't know how long he had been there in a pool of blood. So the news shocked me. Then I had to pray and think how to break this news to my mum who was living with me in the back of the church. So finally, I found enough courage and said, Mami, in my very broken tutu. And um, for context, right, my mum had already lost a son during World War II. He was 10 years old. We never met him. I wasn't born then. He died of tonsillitis. There was no medicine. I have photos of him, one or two. A handsome boy. Right? She had lost that son. She had also lost my second brother, from a rare skin cancer, and my third sister who died of an autoimmune disease. And this was now the fourth of her 12 children. And we all knew, lightheartedly amongst us, that in all likelihood, that my eldest brother was her favorite. Right? So I sat her down, held her hand, and looked at her and said to her in broken tutu, Mamiya, Koko, and I just said to her, Coco had passed away. How do you think she responded? How do you think she responded? She was speechless for a while and let go a scream of agony the quiet way. Johnny asked, why like this? Why like this? That's being sorrowful unto death. This is not way, the way life should be. 
everything Satan and sin touches turns ugly. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was reversing that. So Mark records three prayers. The first prayer, chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus had to choose between what is priority, healing, 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 the masses were following him, or going on to the next town to proclaim the gospel. Then in Mark 6, he had to choose between being enthroned by popularity or carrying on by humility. And now here in chapter 14 in Gethsemane, his biggest choice was, his biggest choice was not simply healing versus proclaiming, not just enthroned by popularity versus enthroned by humility. His biggest choice was God's will or my will. And we wait with bated breath and we sit on the edge of our seats for the first readers of Mark's gospel. And you ask as you read this for the very first time, what will Jesus choose? What will Jesus choose? Not my will, but yours be done. You could almost hear the whole of heaven clap. Praise God, praise God. Not my will, but yours be done. And so here is, see what can cancel sophisticated sin? What can cancel presumptuous sin? What can cancel transverse sin? Transference sin. The simple faith and obedience of Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the Passover lamb. This is my body for you. Here is my blood for you. What a huge difference between Jesus and the disciples. And you ask, what was the difference between the Lord Jesus and the disciples? It comes down to two words. Jesus watched and prayed. They did not watch and pray. That was the qualitative difference between God's will or my will. God's glory or my glory. And it is it is empowered by the spiritual discipline of watch and pray. So what killed Jesus? Sophisticated sin that hides, presumptuous sin that denies, transverse sins that blames. And ask of you and ask of myself, which one are you prone to? Which one are you prone to? Before we end our night, and for you to sit there and to think that you are not prone to any of this, you're not vulnerable to any of this, is to lie to God in your heart, is to spit in Jesus in the face and say to Him, your death on the cross is a nothing. I could have saved myself from Satan and sin and the ugliness and the brokenness of life. That is a lie, friends. So Jesus, watch and pray. Learn a lesson here. We draw lessons now. God ordains all circumstances in Jesus' life to make him look bad. It will be the same for us. God will ordain, ordain all circumstances in Christ in the church's life to make us look bad while we are doing the utmost good to the world. And you need all the spiritual maturity. You need the path of the greatest resistance to reach a conclusion 
that Jesus is God and Jesus is good, contrary to the evidence. That's spiritual maturity. But if you choose to be like the disciples, right? If you choose to be like the disciples, you don't watch and you don't pray. We, know, we manipulate selective evidence to make us look good while doing bad. The religious teachers did it. Judas did it. That spiritual immaturity is the path of least resistance. And everyone concludes, this is a madman and a nobody dying on the cross. They conclude prematurely. They conclude wrongly. They conclude mistakenly. But praise be to God, Jesus watched and he prayed. And because he watched and he prayed, here is the gospel truth. Eventually, in the fall, everything is ruined by Satan and sin. But because Jesus watched and prayed in Gethsemane, headed towards Calvary, everything ugly is re redeemed by Jesus and the cross. Amen? So please know the importance of watch and pray. So I end by asking you, the pandemic, by God's grace, seemed to be coming to an end if Omicron is the landing place. So it's the ending of the pandemic and you ask yourself, is the beginning of what? We keep talking about the new normal. I want to say to you as we listen to Mark chapter 14, it's the beginning of you and me. Watch and pray. So there are three groups of people I'm going to address in ending. Watch and pray for those who are still seeking, the uncertain ones, still looking. Watch and pray for those of us who think we are Christians, but we are wandering sheep. And then watch and pray for wounded shepherds. So if you're still looking, remember what I said at the beginning? For the uncertain sheep, you have no, it's no more right and no more time. You can't afford to be a proud atheist who dismisses God at work in Jesus. You can't afford to be an indifferent bystander who puts God on permanent hold. Maybe next week I'll think about Him. Maybe next year I'll think about Him. You can't be a fickle moralist moved by fleeting moral issues. You've got to make up your mind now. If, he, if Jesus is good shepherd, if he is the good Lord, why delay in knowing him? So I told the story I'm preaching Bishan a while ago, and the story I've told in different places. My pastor friend in Australia told me this, and one of his church members, right, ran, uh, runs a light factory in, in, in Australia, one of the cities. The business did really well, and so Christmas celebration to, to celebrate the good business Call all the workers together, I don't know, 30, 40 of them, and then had a party, a Christmas party, and then sent them all off with a gift. And the gift, everybody knew that the, the owner, right, was a Christian, so he gave them a gift of a Bible, right? And nobody opened that Bible. <laughs> then one or two started to open it, and as they opened it, right, they discovered that their bonus was in the Bible, then the word got around, open your gifts, open the Bible, the bonus is there. <laughs> That's not bad, right? We should try that. That's not bad. 
You look at the cross and say, what's so good about that? You dive into Jesus' life and all the goodness of God is on that cruel, cruel cross. And so this is the watch and pray if you're seeking. Wait no longer. Seek no longer. Jesus is the answer. Sin is the problem. Death is the problem. Satan is the enemy. Jesus undoes that all. What about us if you consider yourself a Christian? For us, watch and pray for us wandering sheep. The pandemic has ended. It's the beginning of what? I believe with all of my heart that the average Christian around the world is weak, is anemic, almost comatic. Why? The average church from the west to the east is weak, is anemic, is comatose because we are forgetful worshippers. We are utilitarian worshippers. We are nominal worshippers. Forgetful worshippers of how good God has been to us in the past. And wanting more and more things when God has given us everything we have in Christ. Utilitarian worshippers thinking that Jesus exists to solve my problem, to soothe my pain, instead of to save me from Satan and sin. Finally, we are nominal worshippers decoupling what happens on a Sunday to what happens from Monday to Saturday. Decoupling what happens here at an Easter convention to what should happen for the rest of our life. How can we, we be a strong witness for Jesus? We can't be friends. The ending of the pandemic must be the start of WAP, Watch and Pray, personally. Watch and pray as a married couple. Watch and pray as a family. Watch and pray as the elders and deacons of the Presbyterian Church. Watch and pray as churches. Watch out for Satan. Watch out for sophisticated sin. Watch out for presumptuous sin. Watch out for blaming of others. Only then can we step up to the plate to win 85% of Singaporeans who are not yet Christians and a whole neighbourhood of Southeast Asia where we are in the small, small minority. Watch and pray that we have a mission to fulfil for Jesus. The pandemic comes to an end, the services resume, and you go back to normal. What normal? Bad normal or good normal? We can't go back to that. There will be another wave of discipline. For every wave is to purify the church and judge the world. Every wave is to purify the church and to judge the world. And there is watch and pray for the seeker. There's watch and pray for us wandering sheep. There's a watch and pray for pastors and leaders. And I want to stretch the meaning of the word pastors across the board. Pastors means you shepherd people under your care. And you might be the pastor of a small Bible study group. Right? And I shared this in our teaching with the leaders, that um, three things wound pastors from a good article that I read. Projection, transference, blame shifting. And what is this? 
Projection is an unconscious process of projecting emotions, desires, character traits that you don't like about yourself onto someone. And all of a sudden, you find with all the rest, they projected all the things they didn't like upon Jesus. If Jesus, the chief shepherd, got this, we as the under-shepherds will get the same. And here is the bigger one with transference. Transference is you suffer the Messiah devil's complex. First people like you, idolize you. And then after a while, when you don't meet their needs or say something that they don't like in terms of your counseling or your teaching in a Bible study or from the pulpit, you demonize them. And they could be the same people. So they did with Jesus as chief shepherd. So they will do to you as under shepherd. If I had to start a ministry, I have so many things upon my heart to start, right? Interested in the next generation training them, and then for the wounded generation of pastors, I speak to so many pastors across the board, around the world, and just started a senior ministers fellowship to help our senior ministers not lose hope as they pastor our 16 EP churches. As pastors and Christian leaders, we are a walking target for people's projection, transference, and blame-shifting. You ever heard a pastor download his heart to you? Of how he's trying his level best, but his level best never seems to be good enough? That's the pain. And so we got to learn from the wounded shepherd Jesus, that looking to Jesus, we read this in starting the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of God. And Paul the Apostle says this in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Look here. Paul says, My suffering, your sake. My suffering, your sake. And here's the staggering truth. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Is he, is he speaking an untruth, a blasphemy? He's making up for the sufferings of Christ? Surely he doesn't mean that Jesus dying on the, on the cross, that his sufferings there were imperfect and incomplete. No, he's saying that we're not value-adding to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, but we, as the under-shepherds, beginning with Paul, we're continuing the work of Jesus to his church, by suffering for the church. And so you've got to know that all your spiritual leaders, we are wounded for the church's sanctification. Jesus is wounded for the church's, is crucified for the church's salvation, but we are wounded for the church's healing. And is this a blessing or a burden? It all comes down to watch and pray. This is the sin I never knew. But if you watch and pray, these are the sins I will know more and more. I will confess more and more. I'll repent of. And this is a saviour I never knew. The saviour who turns all my ugliness and brokenness into salvation and glory of God. Amen.